Welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe and leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen. And if you're interested in some insider perks, you can pitch in a few dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash cleantechnica. That's patreon.com forward slash cleantechnica. Hello again, and welcome to Clean Tech Talks. I'm your host, Michael Bernard. And today I have Anders Forsland, PhD and founder and CEO of Heart Aerospace. Welcome, Anders. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, so you've got some really interesting stuff going, and you're really at a cusp point in a major industry of aviation. It's early days for you, but you've got some really good track record stuff going on. But let's start with who the heck you are and where the heck you came from, because <laughs> who, who knows Anders Forslund? Talk to, talk, talk to us about how you arrived at this point. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. So I'm actually from Gothenburg, Sweden, and which is also where we have, have the sort of head offices of Heart Aerospace. And so for those of you who don't know Gothenburg, it's the second city of Sweden on the Swedish West Coast, close to both Denmark and Norway. And it's also where the home of, of, of large industries in Sweden, such as Volvo and, and SKF. So, and I grew up very close to an airfield and it's actually the airfield that where we're now based our operations. But back then it was a military air, airfield and it was flown by a lot of, you know, Swedish fighter jets. So Sweden has a sort of a long history in aviation stemming from being neutral in the Cold War and we build supersonic fighter jets and still do, but some of the sort of very innovative designs for a country that sort of had 6 million people when they were building these and they were using the tools that we were not using today anymore. So we have this proud history and I, I sort of grew up in a bit sort of in the, in the shadow of that I would be playing at the local soccer field and you'd have the Viggen planes flying overhead. I did my sort of did in, studied engineering physics in school and did my master's in space engineering and ended up doing a PhD in aerospace product development while we're working for a local aerospace company here that makes uh, parts to jet engines. And sometime, and, and, my, and my PhD was very much within the field of product development. So it was not just necessarily engineering, but also sort of project, product management, project management, Everything from, you know, lean product development to multidisciplinary design optimization to, to all of this. So I think I got a little bit, yeah, it was a good formative year. So thinking a lot about not just how, how, how you want to build an airplane, but how you want to start an aerospace company. And in 2013, I got the opportunity to, I got a scholarship to go to MIT on a, on a researcher exchange. And this was in the middle of, I think, the electrification boom where everything was, 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 was happening there. You know, people started realizing that Tesla was a thing. And, you know, drones were kicking off. I had bought a drone that I was tinkering with in my free time. And you'd have people like Elon Musk would show up to, to MIT and talk about, uh, you know, electric planes, basically. And I sort of came back from that experience uh, knowing two things in my head. One was that electrification is coming to aviation. And I wanted to spend my time, my time, professional life working on this problem, you know, working till about 2050 or so. And second, that it, it wouldn't happen in Sweden. So I was trying desperately for, for a, a, about a year, doing very, very advanced job applications to all of these electric flying car startups that were popping up in Silicon Valley, because I believe that that was where I needed to go. So actually reviewing some of these old job applications, I would send, I think I sent like a 70 pager analysis <laughs> On, on some some aircraft just to impress them. I think they thought I was nuts. I even started building <laughs> small. Yeah, it was it was a complete. I, I just became so fascinated by, with this whole thing and how to implement these these learnings. And I think you know the, the job application actually became sort of an excuse and became sort of an imposed deadline upon myself. But anyway, fast forward. So, so in 2018, Norway announced that they want as the first country in the world for all short-haul flights to be 100% electric uh, by 2040. And while I I'd been exploring those hundreds of startups that are building electric flying cars, nobody was really building a conventional aircraft and specific, specifically something that was suited to, to the market in, in Norway. 
And we started a research project and say, what can we do in Sweden about this? So as I mentioned previously, you know, we have a history in aviation, mm-hmm. we have a history in, in cars and now electric cars. So mm-hmm. sort of our head offices is very close to the Polestar head offices, which is I think one of the prime sort of Tesla Model 3 competitors. And that idea quickly came, became from a research project to actually getting to fly an electric plane and believing that the time was now. Mm-hmm. And we desperately needed funding. So I went, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's the, uh, which turns out this is the main problem in, in building an aerospace company. It's Who the main problem thought? in every startup. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so, you know, we seeing what happened in Silicon Valley with, with, com- with, with the companies like Boom Supersonic is building a supersonic airliner and all that, but they got their start from Y Combinator. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were recommended to apply there and we did and and we got in and at this point it was just me and my fiance moving to California in 2019 with our little aerospace company moving into a small sort of cottage in, in Mountain View and quite quickly you know the what, 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 you, what really you get from Y Combinator you get many things but one of the big things you get is you get two minutes you get two minutes on a stage in front of the most prominent investors in the world Yep. And for us, it was on May or March 18th, 2019. So you realize, what am I going to fill those two minutes with, uh, with to get people to believe and support our electric aerospace project? And we, what we did was we went back to Sweden and Norway, and we spoke to the airlines there. And we said, you know, we want to build this company in Sweden. We want to build an aircraft for your market. And they, uh, SAS, Bra, which are the two big operators, uh, SAS is the pan-Nordic operator, Scandinavian operator which is one of the large, you know, large airlines in the world, but also Brawl, which was the local Swedish regional operator, and Hydra, who's the main Norwegian operator, they agreed to sign letters of interest mm-hmm. uh, for a number of air- aircraft. They said that if you, can, if you can pull through and build these aircraft, obviously we're interested in them because mm-hmm. this is, you know, we want, and, uh, we want to be carbon neutral, and this is what our governments are asking for. So, so, so you know, they put this, put this uh, letters forward, and this is what yeah. we... Then stood on stage on March 18th and sort of declared to the world that, you know, you, you may not know this, but, but Norway wants all their f- flights to be electric by 2040, and there's no product to meet this demand. So that's why we're building it. And we already have the support of these airlines that they want us to succeed. And we believe that this, this in Scandinavia alone is, is a you know, large market. And if we expand this worldwide, we can sort of revolution our visual aviation. And from that, we were fortunate enough to, you know, do a successful seed race. And we came back to Sweden to start this company. And one thing, the first thing we sort of stumbled upon was that it was this great facilities that have been built right next to where my parents live, where I used to, uh, you know, where I grew up on an airfield that was not being used for commercial service anymore. And it was the, it was a fairly large hangar with an office space next to it. So this is where we me and Clara, my fiance and co-founder, moved in and started our company. And you know, from there, we we looked at we looked at this, and so we we decided a few things. So one thing we decided was that we want we want we want to put a clear goal with a clear deadline, and we want to sort of reverse engineer from that. And we wanted it to be ambitious, but we don't want it to be unrealistic. And we decided then sort of that, that in the 2026 timeframe is when we'll have this in service. And that would then inform a lot of the decisions that we would make on building this aircraft. And what it essentially meant that with this very tight deadline, you could not, you know, you have to really pick your battle. And so when you, when you got that deadline, you really started have, having to pick your battles on what you wanted to do and how to meet it. And one of the things that, that sort of came out of this is that, uh, that you know, we have to make a, build a very conventional airframe. We shouldn't spend our time innovating on things that are not required because we, we wanted to get on a mar- market very soon. And one of the, so we decided to build an aluminum airframe, a traditional high wing aircraft that is sort of similar to air, aircraft that's been around for very long. So to minimize risk in the sort of air, uh, in the field of, of sort of flight sciences and, and certification. We also decided on which was very early on, on the 19-seater. And some people are not familiar with this, but essentially it's something called EASA CS23 in Europe and PAR23 in, 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 in the US. Essentially, if you go below 20 seats, you're building an aircraft in the sort of regional commuter category. You are not sub... You, you, the, the sort of... 
time frame of, of certifying such an aircraft and getting it to market is much, much smaller. It's sort of an order of magnitude when it comes to cost. So, you know, you can't really compare. So if you go to a 20 seater, it becomes sort of similar to building a 787 uh, or a 747. Even if you're building somewhat a dash, simplified. Even, even if you're <laughs> building simplified. Yeah. a dash eight or something, yeah, you're, still exactly. seven, you're still looking at a 747, 767 deal of regulation. Exactly. Which is, I mean, this is, uh, this is sort of making a oversimplifying a bit, but it's a big step function there from 19 to 20 people. And we believe that 19 was also the number where it started to make financial sense for our operators. And it's also a little bit where the limits go, not in terms of sort of the physics of building an electric airplane, because I think that some people misunderstand that it's only applicable to very small airplane, but more the sort of how do I say, there, there's, you, you can piggyback on a lot of the development, for instance, on charging infrastructure that's being made for electric trucks. The size of the motor where is sort of, in terms of power is sort of similar to what you have in cars and trucks. You have to build a higher torque, but the, the power levels are similar. So it's something that you can actually get a lot of synergies from the automotive industry. So we think we hit that sort of very tight tight sort of intersection between what's technically feasible and what's a viable product. And we started, you know, building on this and then we started looking at this and how do we, de- how do we sort of de-risk this? How do we put the risk up front? Well, uh, we thought we built this aluminum airframe. We put, um, we put everything that's novel and new, we put them inside of the nacelles. So the nacelles being the structures, you know, the sort of gondolas that are hanging out. You, you know this, but- Tell it for, the, for, for our audience, they may not know yeah. it, so. <laughs> yeah. And essentially, you know, putting our, our batteries there. So each nacelle filling it up with about the equivalent of two Tesla cars worth of batteries. And, that, and then- That actually uh, putting... maps to fuel cells, the fuel being in the wings of normal airplanes anyway. So yeah. the weight distribution is actually fairly normal for uh, the airplane, it just stays constant um, through the uh, flight as opposed to diminishing. Yeah, this is definitely, you know, and the, the sort of aircraft is being lifted through the wings. So in flight, it's a very- very optimal way of carrying it from a structural efficiency. And it's also that you you get this redundancy because you have four motors. Mm-hmm. So you have to sort of certify for, for one motor failure. So that's why we have four. So we don't get this huge imbalance load. So we, we can actually sort of underdimension the motors compared to what, what turboprops are. And also from a sort of, a, you know, there's been some fired, obviously there's been some, some early, in the early days of lithium ion batteries, there were some, some incidents in 787. And and while you know the industry has come a long way since then, and, and those batteries will not be certifiable today, there's still the added efficient or sort of safety of having something that's not in a load carrying structure that's hanging outside of the wing and outside of the cabin. So if there was a battery runaway event, it wouldn't sort of propagate through the cabin and 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 all this stuff. So it felt like a very conceptually safe design. And then we started actually, okay, so let's build that. Let's build an electric power system, a powertrain on a rig. Let's build our entire nacelle. And we started doing that and we hired a very good team, especially in the fields of sort of motor, power electronics, motor control. We, we actually decided together with some suppliers that we build the motor for this plane from the ground up ourselves. So it was like a custom design that we made and we created a very, very high efficiency motor with, with about 97% efficiency and a torque of, of 2,300 Newton meters, which is like pretty impressive. And it was just, yeah, it was a combination of, of, of really optimized and we could also sort of optimize everything together. Yep. And, and we demonstrated this to the world. We had a big hangar event in, 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 20, in the sort of September of 2020, where we invited, even we got some members of the Swedish royal family to show up, and some members of the Swedish government. And we're like, okay, you know, people are saying it can't be done. Here's demonstrator of, 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 of an electric motor this size. And this was our main, among other things, like the preliminary aircraft design and, and, and some certification and some supply chain milestones. This was sort of our main deliverable for the money that we raised at Y Combinator. And it was a team of you know about nine full-time employees and nine consultants and the suppliers that we were using that developed something that in my experience working you know in the jet engine industry where I did my PhD is something that you know takes billions of dollars, thousands of employees, decades to do. And when you're one of those employees, you don't really notice anything moving, right? You're, you're, you're just you're just a very small 
spoke in the big machinery and here you here i so it was like one of the most rewarding experiences of my life and be like okay let's sign the paperwork let's start this this project together and then you know you have your milestones and within five months you had that motor in your hangar and you were like is this real <laughs> it was it was uh, pretty impressive and then when we started running it and using our own software to optimize the the performance of this motor it was it was a very uh yeah it, it, it's something that feels very good because when you're in a startup like this and you're you know it's it's all uh it's 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 sometimes hard to compre- comprehend because you're the world is changing so much when you're building a startup and growing so fast to have that sort of as an anchor standing there in our hangar where you can go down and touch that motor it feels like a very good <laughs> sort of just it, it sort of grounds you in a way which i think is is really good and but, but it's being that, but it's yeah. being grounded as an aerospace startup founder an appropriate metaphor <laughs> i don't know i i uh, i well we have to think think about balanced <laughs> i would say maybe it's a better centered you, you, yeah your center of mass balanced. is appropriately yeah. positioned <laughs> exactly no, no, but it, it was it was a remarkable achievement, but it also was a testament. What we believe is actually not not just proving that we're a capable engineering company and we're not just building vaporware, but also simultaneously demonstrating that this is the big benefit for for the airline because something that's this easy to build, something that you know a small team can build that only has sort of one moving part, like electric motors has also has this tremendous cost advantage and has this tremendous maintenance advantage where we're talking about one factor, you know, 20 or something in that. Let's tease that apart. How many moving parts are an equivalent propeller motor for a plane? Oh, wow. Like, I I don't know, hundreds. I, you know, a jet engine is, you know, well, it really depends if you're looking at a sort of dual shaft or triple shaft engine, but, you know, you have these that are, have, have gearboxes, you know, Turbo props are notoriously complicated because they're, you know, they have, so it's just a, it is one of the most complex products that, that, that can be made. And it is something that is really important to understand. It's not suitable for short flights. No. So first of all, if, you, if you're going to that trouble of putting all that complexity together, roughly costs the same if you want to fly 70 people as 20. So you're not getting an advantage for putting it on a small plane. And then you have the thermal cycle of heating this stuff up and cooling it down, which happens for every flight. So you're not getting any benefit for doing a short flight because you're essentially wearing your most expensive component for doing a small fjord hop in Norway. So it's been uniquely not, it's never, you know, it it doesn't make sense that, you know, we have, we, and obviously we haven't talked so much about range, but, 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 you know, we have the same technology in the Airbus A350 that can take you sort of from Northern Europe to Australia. Mm-hmm. And you use the same technology to cross a fjord in Norway and, or, or, or you know, fly short island hopping or flight short regional routes. And that, that is, in, in itself doesn't really make sense. Well, and- I, here, in, uh, here in Vancouver, I've got a, an interesting perspective because I do do island hopping. Mm. Um, I fly from Vancouver's downtown to Victoria, where my, yeah. you know, my mom now lives. Yeah. And that's from a float plane. Yeah. So it's in that, the same that, scale. It's called Har- Harbor Air or something like Harbor that. Harbor Air. And it's the one yeah. with the electric. I, I'm going to be right. As soon as that electric, I think it's a Beaver uh, airframe. Yeah, yeah. As soon as that Beaver airframe is certified and in, in production, I'm going to be one of the first passengers. Absolutely. No. Definitely. It's, it's such an amazing, I mean, it's, it's an amazing achievement and, and it's sort of showing where, where this technology takes us. And it's also showing that, you know, the issue of range, because people, you know, people have t- told me, for instance, you know, there's no, like when we started this, there, there's a huge market, an undeniable market in Norway, mm-hmm. because Norway is not, as, as a country of fjords, mountains, scarce population, or very, very sparsely populated. And it's a country where also the, the government is very supportive of people living in rural re- regions. So they, they, for instance, have a policy in the Norwegian constitution that everybody should be able to travel to Oslo over the day to represent themselves in front of, you know, different different branches of the government. And and so they fly 30-year-old Dash 8, mm-hmm. uh, so like the 100, the 200 series. Yep. Generally not full aircraft. And, and, and you know, some of these routes are like, you know, the, the shortest are, I think they have... Four or three or four that are 40 kilometers 
They have, yep. You know, the most, you know, they have so many routes that are around 100 kilometers that you wouldn't believe. So it's such an obvious market. And but whereas in Sweden, we have sort of a different country. We're not as mountainous. We have a different policy towards both our rural communities and our aviation. So we've had this really massive downturn in, in regional aviation in the last decades. And, you know, the bad profitability of operating regional airlines has, has you know, reduced it more and more and up to the point where it's, you know, not really creating any value to, to, to or it's not creating as much value, I would say, to the people living in the rural areas because they're not flying far enough or often enough, right? And, and you're removing more and more destinations. You always have to have flight on the hub spoke model to Stockholm. So the, min- the diminishing return of this, and then on top of that, we have, and I would say, you know, uh, understandably a very climate conscious population that have sort of- sort I'm of, trying to remember uh, the, the um, what's, the, uh, what's the Swedish term uh, that uh, was popularized? Flight, flight? Yeah, yeah, flight chain, yeah. Flight chain, yeah. And this was coming along like in 2019, actually due to the sort of Fridays for Future movement and the Greta Thunberg protest, regional aviation went down 11% over the year. And that was before COVID. Yes. And if you're in an industry that has that really low margins and, you know, just, you know, because of this climate thing, or, or you know, which is, I think is, you know, it's very, very, uh, you know, looking at all the science and all everything that's coming out, it's very, very, you know, it's a very, I, I, I don't judge people for, for, for sort of for looking at, at that and saying, you know, this is, this is not good. Right. So, and, so, and, and this is something that was lost in North America that, Flight shame was a personal thing, not a thing that you did to others. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. That was the sentiment yeah, was well, a personal one. Yeah, exactly. You you would not you would stop wanting to post on Facebook that you you know flown somewhere, and and oddly enough, you know even you know regional flights are in many ways you know per person kilometer they're they're the most they're, they're the ones that emit the most because you emit a lot of taxi and takeoff and you also create yeah. a lot of knocks and all that stuff. And it's something that, and, and that there are that, options for. That NOx is something, I mean, I, I spent time uh, last week talking with Paul Martin, who's a chemical process engineer. Yeah. One of our subjects was uh, aviation emissions. You know, so simply, you know, the, the nitrous oxide emissions is something that uh, people just miss in terms yeah. of airline stuff. And the, the global warming potential is 300 times that of CO2. Yeah. Um, and every time you burn something in the, in the atmosphere, nitrogen comes potentially from the fuel, but mixes with oxygen from the air. And one of the, these nitrous oxides come out and they're pretty nasty in terms of global warming. So that's one of the yeah. big savings you've got. Yeah. And there was like a paper that came out in 2020, which was studying this. And there's obviously a lot of, lot of uh, um, how do I say, you know, there, there's a lot of error bars there because they don't know exactly what the effect is, but they're sort of baseline was that it's a 3x on the co2 emissions alone from aviation because of soot <laughs> because of nox because of water vapor and contrails and all this stuff so there's yeah. there's I a read, lot of i read an, that i read that paper and i was uh, writing about shift the challenge of aviation last year and so i, I did read that paper it was very interesting stuff i mean uh, uh, and it, it feeds in there's a the nitrous oxide is kind of that hidden greenhouse gas because it also comes from yeah. fertilizer yeah <laughs> Clean Tech Talk is brought to you by Voltus, a leading technology platform connecting distributed energy resources to electricity markets, delivering less expensive, more reliable, and more sustainable electricity. Voltus is on a mission to help solve the climate crisis by unlocking the full value of distributed energy resources, and we want your help getting there. To view our open positions, visit voltus.co slash cleantechnica. That's www.voltus.co forward slash cleantechnica. So let's tease apart a few things because I mean it's it's a there's one thing let's just start with the market because you've got this really interesting market thing as you pointed out in your you know on your website you say well this this market for this scale of plane has mostly disappeared yeah reasons that I'm hearing uh, I'll test the reasons that I'm hearing one is it's not economic to run normal jet aircraft or you know, turboprops on tiny planes because it's so expensive. But the second is in Sweden, at any rate, you've got this challenge of diminishing value and profits. And it's kind of that squeezes out that stuff. Yeah. We have different types of things in North America, obviously. We've had a, a lot of consolidation of the, the airline industry. But 
What you're trying to do, though, is bring in a, a type of plane which the airports, the airlines don't run on yeah. scales they don't run. So how has that conversation worked with the airlines you've been talking with? So let me specifically bring up this, what's happened now with our, with our, with our sort of news with United Airlines and Mesa yep. Airlines, because this was sort of a, a really, for us, it was a tremendous moment. And, and essentially- it's Huge, 200 and yeah. 100 extra optional. It's like, yeah. the, for clarity, just tell the audience exactly what this news is, because it's huge. Yeah, so uh, actually, let, let me uh, let me start start from the beginning here. So, <laughs> but but essentially, we got a call from Mesa, uh, which is what unite one of the big independent regional operators in the U.S. that fly for United, and we started talking to United as well. And essentially, they were expressed an interest in our product, and we were you know a little bit. We, we always have this conversation with airlines. Okay, but do you fly in the 19 seaters? And they yeah. looked at us and they, or they, they said, you know, no. And we don't, <laughs> there's really not anybody doing that in the US either. Yeah. And we're like, yeah, okay. And then they say, but 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we were the biggest operator of 19 seaters in the world. And we flew hundreds of 19 seaters across the US to hundreds of communities that have since lost all service. So Mesa <laughs> Airlines, for instance, starting in, in Farmington, New Mexico, where they had three destinations that they were supporting around there, or sorry, six different, I think. They, they, you know, you could go six places from Farmington, New Mexico, via plane on a 19-seater, and they have no service today. And obviously those communities that have lost service are, you know, not too happy about it, but that's the, that's something that we were, you know, extremely sad about, but couldn't really get the unit economics to work with, with, with you know, especially with turbo jets, which is something that's mm-hmm. uh, been, been very popular in the U.S., so they approached us and were like, became a little bit like seeing the potential to reinvent this, this market that they knew how to operate and had flown and had dominated in these decades ago. So we thought that this was very, very interesting. And, you know, United saw this, this as an opportunity because they realized that, you know, okay, this starts small now, but this is a, this is sort of a, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel here. Essentially, we don't have to re- reinvent the market here. We can just go back in our old, uh, you know, sort of uh, route maps and, and sort of start opening them up again. Well, and, every airline started with somebody with a plane getting people to pay him or her to fly them to some place relatively near. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, the average route for Mesa in sort of 1994 was, I think it's 172 miles. Mm-hmm. So not nautical miles, but, but sort of round miles. And, and so, you know, they didn't stop flying these because they were not flying far enough. <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the beach, Beechcraft 1900s can fly pretty far. They stopped yep. them because they were not 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 uh, financially feasible. Yeah, and we're, let's, we, let's talk yeah. about that because I'm just going to quote from your frequently asked questions. Yeah. So this one's a, a you know you've got some amazing claims here, and so let's tear them apart. And I'm just going to quote the the stuff. Our electric yeah. motor is about 20 times less expensive than a similar yeah. similar size turboprop and about a hundred times less expensive than the cheapest turbofan. More importantly, maintenance costs are more than 100 times lower. These lower operating costs will make a 19-seater electric aircraft competitive to 70-seater turboprop aircraft. Big claims. Let's talk about them. Yeah. So very big claims. And, and, and it's, well, well, first of all, you know, building these motors, even when we developed them as sort of one-off, they were not very expensive. And we think that we can get the cost down to somewhere, you know, maybe between $30,000 and $50,000 each. And, and that's about 20x. And, and, you know, compared to what, and if you look at something like the, the, the turbofan for the, for the C-series, which, uh, you know, the C- C- uh, there's... The, the maintenance costs for these, and which I, I'm, I, I think they're around $4 million per motor for, for just an overhaul of that engine. So that's $4 million. So this, it's this tremendous shift. And, and as we mentioned, you know, it's, the, it's an electric motor. And this motor, unlike the motor of an electric car, does not have a gearbox. It's not subjected to any imbalance loads. It's wisping air around, right? So uh, that that means that that, that you know you're, you're not getting any really strong forces and and it, the forces are pretty balanced. So ultimately, the only thing that 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 is sort of keeping you there is the wear of the of the 
of the uh, the bearings, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the only thing that you need to be worried about. And and so we're very optimistic that we can reach reach something around the hundred x. And obviously, it doesn't really matter if it's fifty x or hundred x. It's just a, such a big big number, big difference. However, I mean, I also want to clarify that the big thing that's happening as a shift then is not away from the motor to the battery pack because the battery pack has a limited lifespan. Yep. And but if you sort of look at that and sort of do the accounting for the battery pack as in terms instead of for the fuel, right? Mm -hmm. You actually end up in a place where 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 electri electricity and especially electricity in Norway and places that we're talking to is much cheaper than jet fuel. And even if you account for the amortization of the battery packs, and, and even if you put fairly conservative estimates, like you want to replace them on every 1,500 cycles, which is, which is I think is tremendously conservative, you end up in being in a very, very good position, position there as well. Yeah, no, so it is, um, yeah. my, um, I was looking at the Pipistrel, which undoubtedly yeah. you're fully aware of, but the Pipistrel is a little two-seater right now. It's a, used for training. It's a certified uh, training electric aircraft. And the quotes out of that say that the fuel is 5% of the cost of aviation fuel. Yeah. You know, so you can pay for a lot of battery replacement if you're spending 95% less on fuel. Yeah. yeah. And it is, that's what's so exciting about this, right? And, and it's also one of those things as the unit economics, as it looks now are the least favorable that ever going to be. <laughs> it's going to get better and better because we're ra dramatically ramping up battery cell uh, production in the world. Yep. We're, I think we're getting to a place where we get more and more sustainable energy uh, to feed that. And, you know, the, 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 and, and, you know, whereas battery energy density is sort of slowly but steadily creeping up with some potential game changer improvements sort of coming in a, in, in well, a few years. I, I like to talk about batteries as a, a moving inter point of intersection between yeah. weight, exactly. density, and cost. Exactly. Yeah. And that curve has been so steadily improving that it's now viable for electric airplanes of your scale. I mean, five yeah. years ago, it was suitable for two-seaters, but by 2026, you're not going to have a problem having you know, regional flights with 19 people on board and, the whole, and their luggage, or at least their laptop yeah. bags. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so that th it's really, so these forces are so strong that, you know, it's just sort of that, you know, and obviously we're a startup, so we're ambitious. And obviously that all the, all the goals that we've set, which is something that, you know, our suppliers are aligned with something that our, you know, certifying authorities will be applying for a TC later this year. So we're all all sort of doing this together and running as fast mm -hmm. as we can. But obviously, people can look at it and say, oh, you know, maybe you're going to miss your deadline by a year, or you know, maybe it's the battery costs are going to be a little bit higher than what you anticipate due to certification issues or something. But it's it's just a question of, it's not a question of if, it's a question yeah. of sort of when, and and when we reach that inflection points and. And it's sort of in our nature as aerospace people to be very, very conservative. And sometimes it is, you know, it is the development is sort of catching up on, on, on us a bit where we're like, shit, you know, even the, like, for instance, for, for battery cycle life is something that, that has been made this tremendous strides mm -hmm. over the last, you know, just, just by sort of out tweaking the chemistries a little bit. So that's why I, I think um, it dramatically changes our, our, our I, unit economics. I, I am one of the uh, firms I'm affiliated with is a um, redox flow battery company with a couple of PhDs of electrochemistry. So I spent yeah. far more time than the average bear has thinking about electrochemistry and batteries. Yeah. So I, I, the amazing improvements so electrochemistry, you know, I, the way I like to, the comparison I like to make is, you know, centuries ago, there was alchemy and yeah. now electrochemistry has made it real. It's just weird science. Yeah. Um, there's another thing I'd like to, tease apart and you, you made a very clear statement that you made a very specific pragmatic choice to have the airframe be very conventional yeah. and one of the observations i've been making for about for several years now is that electric drivetrains in aviation remove enormous numbers of constraints from yeah. airframe construction and i know that your phd 
had a whole bunch of stuff on airframe construction. So at, at one point you must have had to let go of your visions and go, I'm just going to do something really normal, even though I have a much freer palette for design than I used to. So yeah. talk about that if you would. So I had to, I had a, I had an old like gym teacher in high school <laughs> who used to who used to tell me one thing that sort of stuck with me and something that I tell my engineers as well is the, the you know the, the hardest exercise to do with a ball is to keep it still because <laughs> you have like a football or, or a soccer ball in your hand and he was telling this when you know he was he was you know informing us of something and somebody would be bouncing the ball and he said you know the hardest thing about the you know do with the ball is not dribbling or 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 something it's just keeping it still. And I think that's something that, that I've taken through this design as well. It's like, you're at this place where you're like, okay, we're you know, losing all these constraints and you want to be your engineer and go like, okay, let's just, let's just do something that's, let's innovate on every front. And then you, but, but I think it's also sort of like a Warren Buffett saying that, you know, you list your 20, top 25 priorities and then take 20 of those and you know, write, you know, don't do this, right? And I think that ultimately we ended up in a place where we're like, okay, you know, this is going to be, we're, we're going to build an aerospace company. We're going to do it for real. We're going to get it certified. We're going to put people in it. We're going to get it to the highest forms, levels of safety, which is required for aviation, the safest form of transport. And we want to do it in a, in, in a time where if we want to be serious about reaching that zero in 2050, like we should have the first planes <laughs> We shouldn't have them in, in, in 20 years and uh, we should have them now or, or at least in five years. So it's, it's sort of becomes this massive killer dollar exercise. And in turn, it's actually, even if you look at it, there's, there's these things that are happening with, with these distributed electric propulsion. There's the boundary layer ingestion, which is sort of putting a, a thing on the fuselage. There's the wing tip mm -hmm. propellers, but which are all very interesting technologies. But, but, but when you don't have to move fuel around to tiny yeah. motors yeah. and you don't have to have run drive shafts around the place, mm -hmm. you're just running electrons to a, yeah. like Lilium's, I think, technology with its uh, tiltable electric fans. It's a brilliant idea, but much harder to certify. Yeah, exactly. And, and but, but I would want to say also that sort of ultimately there's, you know, First principle, like, like getting an uninterrupted flow with a large, large propeller. And we have four large propellers that are moving a lot of air very slowly. Yep. We have these seven bladed propellers that are spinning at a slower RPM. That is sort of where you get this trade off between sort of kinetic energy and momentum mm -hmm. being very like, you want to move as much air as slowly as possible. And also from a noise perspective. So this is mm -hmm. really like what's, you know, you have this really strange, like, I think it's a fifth degree polynomial that I haven't really understood, but it's sort of what describes, you know, the wing tip speed and, you know, how to create that noise or how, and if, if you do this, you know, like ours and you just put another blade, there are two more blades or three more blades compared to what, what you had, then you're actually reducing that, that spinning uh, a little bit and you get this dramatically improved noise signature, which yep. sounds really cool, by the way, like a seven bladed propeller sounds like kind of like a jet or something. It sounds very futuristic. Yeah, uh, yeah. one a... of the things I went deep on a few years ago, specifically around um, wind generation, was acoustics. So I've spoken to yeah. PhDs of acoustics, and you know, I critiqued something that ended up in noise and health. You know, in yeah. a letter to the editor. So you know, I've, I've spent time learning the weird stuff about acoustics. And uh, as a matter of fact, my an article I wrote about how electric cars will reduce some aspects of traffic noise in certain areas, ended up being, being translated into Chinese because it was important for the Chinese market to understand this. But air, air traffic is interesting because it's not just the engine noise, it is the propeller noise. Yeah. So, you know, let's tease this apart. You're eliminating, you've got a bit of a whine from the motor undoubtedly, but it's a lower yeah. and it's not propagating as hard as the big bass notes of the jet engines and stuff. Mm -hmm. What decibels are you projecting for at what hertz for your, yeah, for your wow. engine? We haven't made that studies. We've been more like running the propeller and listening to it and being like, okay, this is what it sounds like. Yes. You know, noise is also something that's very subjective. Yes. But I will tell you like, like the one like great, understanding that, that 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 sort of came to us with this which was really really like for a 200 kilometer route yep. about for a turbo prop something like 10 percent of your fuel is for your taxi mm -hmm. 
So, you know, get not, not take off, but taxi getting through the runway. If you have like yep. a 10 minute taxi, which is not uncommon. And this is because a jet engine only really has one operating points. It's like a, it's like yeah. full steam ahead or nothing. Right. Yep. So, so otherwise it's, you're, you're not going to get it to work. So what people have done instead is that they pitched the propeller to where the propeller is very, very inefficient. Yes. Just inefficient enough so that you're not skidding off when you're taxiing, but you know, moving at a leisurely pace down the tarmac. It turns out this burns a lot of fuel. Yep. Um, and it makes what, a lot of noise. And for the big jets, that's one of the reasons they're moving to electric taxi tractors now. Yeah, exactly. One of the things we're talking about with um one of the firms I'm affiliated with is doing a uh, ground motion study for YVR, uh, Vancouver Airport. Um mm -hmm because they're considering doing a, a new taxiway between the two runways to assess taxi duration and greenhouse gas emissions and fuel savings. And we, one, of the, one of the companies I, I run is, does um, agent-based simulation across three-dimensional spaces to look for statistical interesting stuff over extended periods of time. And so it's the same problem you're articulating yeah. right it, it, people think, oh, it's taking off well, it's just sitting on the ground wasting energy. Yeah. So. And also contributing a lot to local pollution with these noxes and suit and all that stuff. So, so, but if you remove all that and, you know, and, and, and turbo let's, actually just, let's actually just talk about that just for a second, because we talked about the nitrous oxide global warming potential, yeah. um, you know, small amounts of nitrous oxide emitted compared to the CO2, but three times the global warming impact in part, you know, and that in contrails, especially for nighttime uh, high altitude flights, you know, yeah. that's the, that's bad spot, which is an operational thing, but yeah. the nitrous oxides, there's multiple types of nitrous oxides and a bunch of them turn it. One of them turns into ground smog. Mm. And that's the, the problem around airports is you end up with bad air quality because yeah. of the nitrous oxide. Same thing with um, gas plants, by the way, you know, yeah. gas plants are high emitters of nitrous oxide that causes smog. So anyway, but yeah, no, the and benefits and are huge. Exactly. It is huge. And that has moved to this sort of, you know, from a city planning perspective, you want to move the airports out of the city, right? <laughs> because uh, you, you don't want, you don't want people living close to it because of the noise and because of the pollution. I mean, well, it's actually, different. I, and different. If you go to San Diego, it's not like that, but well, many Toronto places, too. Least... Toronto. Yeah. Um, I flew out of Billy Bishop Airport. Billy Bishop, famous uh, Canadian. Oh yeah, aviator. I know that. Yeah. I flew out of Billy Bishop Airport to London and Montreal, uh, a couple of dozen times. I had a, uh, I had, you know, dealing with Canadian National Railroad in Montreal when I was based in Toronto. So I'd have to be in Montreal to talk and via rail. I've spent a lot of time in transportation, and you know, they they had a big fight couple of years ago about whether to allow jets to fly out of there as opposed to just turboprops and now they lost because of the noise hmm. but you know you can just imagine how all the people who live on the waterfront in toronto will be ecstatic with yeah. electric airplanes seven bladed electric airplanes are whisper quiet compared to the dash eights that are flying out of there right now yeah so. i mean it will be and and you would so the people living close to the airport would be happy the people that are flying short routes would also, you know, the door-to-door -door times could be reduced and we could sort of create that vision of flying. And it's not something that you do like, you know, flying is first of all, something that is very, very unevenly, unevenly, you know, some people fly a lot. Most people like maybe fly once a year, actually only 20% of the world's population has ever flown an aircraft. So, but if you create that, you can, you know, I think people when, when flying came, people were sort of thinking that, okay, everybody's going to fly everywhere. We're going to have the George jets in future. But but if we can sort of, and maybe there's limitations to, to that, but but, uh, but it's definitely sort of opening up the potential for people to sort of be commuting via plane, you know, working one place and living somewhere else, uh, maybe on a daily or a weekly basis. There's a lot of these things that could change and they can also inform like where people want to set up their businesses. And I, and uh, like, this is, I, I think it's one thing that is super exciting about this. And it's it's also one of those things that I find like particularly sort of rewarding. And, and it's that, you know, it, it's at least, you know, what we're doing both, you know, with the sort of story, uh, with the story that I told from, uh, from, from Mesa and United, and also with the story from, from, from Norway, is that you're actually creating something that adds value, most of its value, not in the hub places, not in the big cities and the metropolises of the world, but you're giving climate tech 
and a new you know, quality of life improvement for people that are living in the countryside. And it's generally not the case with new technology. And if you look at people that are looking at you know, global warming, there's a divide between the urban and rural you know, in the sort of general approach to, uh, to, you know, to, to global warming. And we're seeing that in Sweden as well, that people, you know, and actually being able to create a technology that, that could sort of make, you know, con- connect the fabric of society a little bit and, and show, you know, maybe open up ma- making uh, small towns more competitive uh, and, you know, adding the to quality of life. That, I think that's some, something that's super exciting. actually. Well, in North America, what we're experiencing is a hollowing out of regional transportation opportunities. Yeah. You know, a lot of bus, air, bus routes are being shut down. Um, in Canada, we have legislated rail requirements on via rail, mm-hmm. which means they lose money every year because they're being required to take trains and maintain track to small towns where they get very, very, very few passengers. But an electric, you know, let me just test this. Electric airplane operational costs will be down around the level of big diesel buses, presumably, in terms of traveling between small, small towns. And actually, let's test this idea. What is your expectation? It's 18, um, it's 19 seats. It's smaller than a dash eight. What, what's your runway length requirement? I mean, how, how short will you be able to land and take off is, is your target? Yeah, so, so actually we've designed this for the Norwegian market. So your r- runway length is one of the, the sort of thing that you throw into your equation. So for us, it's 750 meters. Let me actually tell you that in feet because... Well, you're Canadian, so you speak meter, right? So, and I, I've lived in I've lived in Europe, I've lived in Latin America, I've lived in Asia. I I think in meters, at least for distance. <laughs> but Clean yeah. Technica, fifty percent of the audience is in the United States, so. <laughs> so it is two thousand five hundred foot runway, r- roughly. If that makes sense. Yes, yeah, it's seven hundred fifty meters, and that's actually without accounting for without accounting for, for the, the effects of actually having a blown wing. It's something that you do for us as certification criterions for, for when you lose power over, over, over the, with the motor. Yep. So you can, your actual takeoff distance is much less. So the 25, the 750 meter, is that a, I should actually know this because I've, as I said, I grew up on Air Force bases or in Europe and, and Canada, but 750 meters is pretty short. Yeah, it is. It's very short. You know, generally you have two to three kilometers even on a regional airfield. So going to seven hundred fifty is, is is a dramatic, you know, it's dramatically less real estate that you're using for the runway. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the reasons that a lot of people take you know cars to old runways to get them up to speed because you can go a long way. Well, you can't <laughs> go a long way in seven hundred and fifty meters. Yeah. <laughs> you run out of you run out of runway, yeah. and that's kind of the point. There's a lot of regional small runways still around the place that are servicing, you know, the, the people who are dropping pesticides and herbicides onto fields mm-hmm. that are yeah. doing tourism flights that are doing servicing, servicing parachutists, you know, and all yeah. of those, you know, and servicing the tourist crowd. Um, where is it? Uklulet and you know, Tofino out, out on the West coast of Vancouver Island. It's a, primo destination spot, like very remote and beautiful and all those things, you know, seven, eight kilometers of beach that is on the Pacific ocean. And there's nothing between it and Japan, except water and seals yeah. and, and, you know, the occasional killer whale. So it's a gorgeous place and it has a little airport and rich people yeah. fly into there and other people, you know, who just like flying, fly into there. But that's kind of the point. There's a lot yeah. of, there's a lot more small airports out there than the average person realizes. And all of them can be turned into profitable places for bus replacement, for train replacement, for driving replacement. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing is sort of how our travel patterns are emerging. Mm -hmm. So in Sweden, it's clear that if you're like me, we're living in the southern part of Sweden. And if you live in Stockholm or Gothenburg, it it can be cheaper for you to find a flight to Phuket in Thailand. It can be to go to northern Sweden, right? Yes. And flying to Phuket is much worse for the environment than, yes. than getting a regional, regional plane. But the unit economics dictate this. And we're also seeing, you know, in Europe that, you know, this hubification of air travel has had these adverse, you know, mass tourism effects. That you have, you know, places like Barcelona are saying, you know, no more tourists. Please, you know, 
and, and I could get on a flight to fly to Barcelona directly from here, right? Yeah. Uh, but if we can open up, and, and also in the sort of next step of, of air travel is to see, okay, we can't, maybe we can't, and, and generally when we fly somewhere, uh, uh, unless you're on one of the major hubs, you need to do a stopover. So if we can yep. start, you know, instead of building this hub spoke model where everything's a spider web going out from, from mm-hmm. these, you know, Frankfurt's and, and what is it, O'Hare and, uh, and these places in, in, um, in, uh, in, and start, you know, building this grid, kind of like a decentralized node network. Well, that's what uh, Ryanair did too, right? Ryanair's business model yeah. was getting away from the hubs, going yeah. from regional airport to regional airport and yeah. just avoiding it and doing it dirt cheap. Uh, have you t- uh, yeah. It seems like a lot of their flights would be amenable to what you guys are doing too. So I'm not yeah, sure yeah. you spoke we're, to we're, them yet. We're actually fly- we're, our, our, uh, our hangar is based on an old Ryanair airport where <laughs> it was shut down. It's actually the only airport where I ever walked home from because it's so close to where I live. But it's definitely something that, you know, there's new business models and we're seeing new entrants coming into this, you know, mm-hmm. also from the sort of Uber air kind of perspective or yep. people that want to sort of create, you know, sort of check in with an, app, with an app or, you know, also sort of on demand flights is their model for that, where you just go to the air, you know, mm-hmm. the airport. And when there's enough people there, or you can even, you know, like, or creating new types of sort of, business travel. I mean, there's, there's so many possibilities here and uh, we're, we're trying to be in a place where we're like, okay, let's not close the door of any, on any of these possibilities, yep. but also let's see that we have a baseline where it's sort of, can we create a sort of 1994 type regional flight in, in the US or a few of them to start off and making sure that, that that works as well. And then we have to take the baby steps to, to get to that, that, that place where we'll be in the future. And I think it's easy, you know, there's a hype cycle to everything and and it's and it's generally like uh, one of the things that we tend to maybe over overestimate the progress in short term, but we underestimate it in the long term. I think it has to do with sort of linear versus uh, versus well, exponential. There's growth. a sigmoid curve of yeah. adoption. Yeah, we're, exactly. And uh, we're at the very we're in the very flat early point of the sigmoid for electric aviation, but it's coming yeah. rapidly. I mean, every yeah. aerospace company in the world is working on electric or, you know, in some cases, hydrogen fuel cell stuff, which is probably not going to fly. I, I, you know, it's an interesting question there. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. (laughs) 